I'm going to be all over the New Testament this morning. Uh, uh, you, might, you might turn to Ephesians 4, be there a little bit, be there more next week, but um, let me just pray as we get into this message this morning. Father, I, I pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our relationships with one another are a proving ground for our walk with God. If our walk with God is genuine, then it is going to demonstrate itself in the good fruit of brotherly love. And if our walk with God is shallow, it will show itself in superficial relationships that cannot withstand the heat of testing. And the heat of testing is inevitable in this fallen world as relationships are often complicated and difficult. Just this past week, I came across the following story. I don't know whether the story is true or whether someone uh, created it as a parable, but in either case, it makes a, a powerful point. Maybe some of you have heard this. Uh, a pastor asked an older farmer, decked out in bib overalls, to say grace for the morning breakfast. Lord, I hate buttermilk, the farmer began. The visiting pastor opened one eye to glance at the farmer and wonder where this was going. The farmer loudly proclaimed, Lord, I hate lard. Now the pastor was growing concerned. Without missing a beat, the farmer continued, and Lord, you know I don't much care for raw white flour. The pastor once again open, opened an eye to glance around the room and saw that he wasn't the only one to feel uncomfortable. Then the farmer added, but Lord, when you mix them all together and bake them, I do love warm, fresh biscuits. So Lord, when things come up that we don't like, when life gets hard, when we don't understand what you're saying to us, help us to just relax and wait until you are done mixing. It will probably be even better than biscuits. Amen. <laughs> I like that a lot. The Lord does a lot of mixing when it comes to relationships. But the process stretches us. We want everything to be easy. Relationships are hard, and yet the Lord is purifying us, sanctifying us, transforming us through the demanding process of learning to love one another. The sure way for a church family to get better at loving one another is to go through tough stuff together. The sure way for the church family to get better at forgiving one another is to experience the sort of conflict and offense that set the stage for forgiveness. Now, our friend Pete DeBrule is here this morning. <laughs> um, I was talking with Pete about this, uh, this sermon series about a month ago, just mentioned that I was inclined to do this at the beginning of the year, and he, he said, he, he, he offered to be part of it. And I don't know exactly what that meant, but I threw him an invitation last week and I said, 
look, here's a way, since, since you want to be involved in this, here's a way that you can be involved in this. Uh, listen to my next six sermons. I didn't, not that it has to be here in person. I thought he was going to listen online. Uh, listen to the next six sermons, and then you've got the seventh sermon. Like, like you just you listen, pay attention, what's going on in your own heart, and in the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit, and he, you know, he was part of this church for several years. And then you share a message. So, and in this email exchange I had with Pete, he, he shot back an email, and it, and it immediately made me feel a deficiency about this sermon this morning. Because he was like, what's, well, what I took away from it was, what's your objective? Like, oh, that would be helpful <laughs> to clearly state the objective. So Pete, you inspired the next part of the sermon because I'm, I'm trying to set forth the objective through a series of questions. What would it be like for the members of a church family to be virtually impossible to offend and very quick to forgive? What would it be like for the members of a church family to have the ability to put up with a lot and to always assume the best about each other? What would it be like for the members of a church family to have no interest in putting each other down, but only to outdo one another at showing honor? to each other. What would it be like for the members of a church family to not talk about the people with whom they have conflict, but rather to talk to the people with whom they have conflict, and to do so humbly, charitably, and promptly? What would it be like for the members of a church family to not be strangers to one another, but to be known to one another as beloved friends who know how to be present in each other's lives without suspicion? What would it be like for the members of the church family to see relational conflict as an opportunity to grow in relational grace and not as a dreaded situation from which to run? What would it be like for the members of a church family to speak frankly to each other as concerns and disagreements arose with such conversations taking place with disarming humility? unusual honesty, devotion to Christ's honor, and no concern for one's sense of self-importance. Ordinary, flawed, graced brothers and sisters learning to love one another in the same way that Christ has loved them. That is the goal, that we would make progress in that. So the sermon series is titled... An earnest appeal to preserve and promote true, true peace within the body of Christ. And it's an invitation to be sober-minded and serious about doing your part in order to maintain and grow warm-hearted and peaceful relationships among God's people. It's, it's, really, it's really my hope that this sermon a series will function as a prompt to you and to me to take very practical steps that, that, that someone would actually pick up the phone and make a phone call or send a message or write a letter or set up a meeting or invite someone to lunch. I really want the, the learning and the challenge that takes place here in the sanctuary to be matched by eager doing and connecting and 
working stuff out with each other throughout the week. Believing in the theoretical value of preserving and promoting peace within the body of Christ is not the same thing as actually laboring in the strength of the Holy Spirit to preserve and promote peace. Maintaining peace and growing in love for one another requires fighting the good fight of the faith and dying to self. Not easy, but full of joy for those who press on. In this first sermon, this is introductory, this first sermon I want to establish why it is so important to have peaceable, warm-hearted relationships with each other as fellow Christians. And I'm thinking specifically about the church family here at South Paris Baptist Church. You, you can and should apply these principles in other settings with your immediate and extended family members and, and with Christians from other churches. All, all, yes and amen to all of that. But, but I'm most focused upon relationships within our own church family, why is it so important to enjoy sustained peace in our fellowship with each other? Well, I have five reasons that I want to share with you this morning, five reasons why true peace among Christ's people is so important. The first reason peace among Christ's people is so important is because it is at the very heart of God's plan. God's big, big picture plan is to save a people, not isolated and disconnected individuals, but a multi-ethnic, multi-generation people who are brought together in him. The church is referred to as God's household, God's family, and we are brothers and sisters to one another. Paul tells Timothy to pattern his relationships after the family model telling him in 1 Timothy 5, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Encourage younger men as brothers. Encourage older women as mothers. Encourage younger women as sisters in all purity. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. The church is also referred to as the body of Christ. Through, though, though many members, we are one body in him. And like a close-knit body, we are joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, Ephesians 4.16. The peace that is enjoined upon us is not a mere individualistic peace, but an interpersonal and relational peace, as Colossians 3.15 says. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body. God, the masterful creator, has so composed the body, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 24 to 26, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. To be brought together in Christ is to be brought together under his word. We are evangelized and formed into a maturing community of disciples under the authority of the Lord's words. As he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And what's at the very top of the list of the Lord's commands? The greatest commandment, 
placed upon disciples is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus identified that commandment as the most important one. However, he was unwilling to leave the most important command as a stand-alone. It is far too easy to claim to love the Lord while at the same time treating other people very poorly. The Lord won't let us get away with that. He immediately added the second most important commandment, which, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Be as interested in your neighbor's well-being as you are in your own well-being. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And while this neighborly love must be extended to all people, including even our enemies, Jesus raised the standard when he instructed his own disciples about how to love each other, saying in John 13, 34, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now that you understand the fullness of Christ's sacrificial love for you, that is to be your new standard. Love one another in the same way that the Lord loved you generously, sacrificially, willingly, gladly, gladly sacrifice your life and resources for the well-being of your fellow disciple who, let's be honest, just like you, is very ordinary and flawed. And we need a lot of grace. Do you realize that the way that you treat your Christian brothers and sisters is a direct reflection of the degree to which you understand Christ's love for you? The degree to which Christ's love has been truly impressed upon your own heart. If you are stunned that the Lord Jesus would stoop low in order to serve you, and wash your feet and lay down his life as a sacrifice for you in order to forgive and restore you, a great sinner, then surely it doesn't put you out to humbly serve, graciously forgive, and gently restore a fellow sinner. But if, but if serving, forgiving, and restoring a fellow sinner is like pulling teeth, then do you really understand? Do I really understand the Lord's redeeming grace? In our natural sinful condition, apart from the grace of Christ and before the Holy Spirit transforms us, we are enemies of God and enemies of each other. Scripture says concerning our pre-Christian enmity with God in Romans 5.10, while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And scripture also says, concerning our pre-Christian enmity toward each other, in Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But through God's redeeming grace, Sinners discover peace with God through the blood of Christ, and they thereby discover peace with all the other redeemed sinners who have discovered peace with God through the blood of Christ. As Paul said in Ephesians, if you're open to Ephesians now, you can look, look a little bit. Uh, Ephesians 2, 13 to 16, he says, 
But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And those words show how tightly connected peace with God and peace with one another are. Just as the greatest commandment and the second most important commandment show how tightly connected love for God and love for neighbor are. And you see this throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul summarized his his entire instruction this way. The only thing that matters is faith. Working through love, Galatians 5, 6. Faith summarizes our vertical relationship with the Lord. and Love summarizes our horizontal relationships with one another. And the Apostle John did, did exactly the same thing, saying in 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. And not to be outdone, the Apostle Peter gave us a a list of eight healthy and essential spiritual qualities. And the first one on the list is faith. And that list culminates with love. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 8. So we must not fool ourselves into thinking that everything is all right in our vertical relationship with the Lord if so much is wrong in our horizontal relationships with one another. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. 1 John 4.20. John's sobering instruction is not about our neighbors in general, but is specifically about our Christian brothers and sisters who are God's visible image bearers, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and are being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your Christian brothers and sisters, as imperfect and flawed as they are, are visible representatives of the invisible God. They're they're tangible symbols of God's redeeming grace. And you must figure out how to love them from the heart, or you have a big problem with God himself. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother, 1 John 4, 21. So God's big picture plan is to redeem and transform a people who delight to know him and who delight to display his character in their relationships with one another. And with God's big picture plan in view, we begin to see how critically important it is that we be good stewards of God's manifold grace by demonstrating love for one another. And further, we can see the crucial importance of preserving and promoting true peace within the body of Christ by seeing the grave consequences of failing to do so. And that will be my reasons two through five. So the second reason why peace among Christ's people is so important is that failing to preserve and promote peace grieves the Holy Spirit. 
We are instructed near the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. In Ephesians 4, if I've understood it correctly, the, the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned again until verse 30. Ephesians 4.30, which says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, how, how, would, how would we grieve the Spirit of God? Well, in the context, since the Spirit is the one who facilitates unity and peace in the one body of Christ, then grieving the Spirit would happen whenever we carelessly undermine the, the unity and peace of the body. And it's not surprising, therefore, that the instruction to not grieve the Holy Spirit is sandwiched in between very specific instruction about our relationships with each other. So look at uh, Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So we bring pleasure to the Holy Spirit when our attitudes, actions, and words are consistent with His work of creating and sustaining unity within the body of Christ. We bring pleasure to the Holy Spirit when we speak gracious words and when we exhibit kindness and forgiveness to each other. But we grieve the Holy Spirit when we undermine His work. The lead-up to Ephesians 4.3, which tells us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, the lead-up to that is that the triune God has done the work of creating a unified church. Go back to Ephesians 2, verse 18, which picks up from where I left off earlier. For through him, Ephesians 2, 18, for through him we both, both Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you hear the language of unity? We both, one Spirit, fellow citizens, whole structure, joined together, being built together. And after this instruction concerning unity, which continues in chapter 3, Paul expresses his desire that God the Father at the end of chapter 3, that God the Father would be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Then Paul immediately instructs us, going to chapter 4, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, Ephesians 4.1, and to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3. Why? 
Why? Because God has done something, and that something is a unified something, right? Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul goes out of his way to highlight the unity of the body of Christ. This objective unity that exists among all true believers is not something that we have achieved. God has done it. The Father planned it. The Son died for it. The Spirit applies it to his people. The unity of the church is the work of the triune God. Thus, Paul doesn't call us to create it, but to preserve it. Paul doesn't call us to make it happen, but to maintain it, steward it, and guard it. We must keep in step with the Holy Spirit who brings about objective peace in the fellowship of God's redeemed people. You know, sometimes... We're unhappy when we look out and we see people outside the church twisting the good works of God. You know, we, sinners take God's good work of masculinity and femininity, femininity and they twist it. Sinners take God's good gift of marriage and they twist it. Sinners take God's good gift of procreation and they twist it. Sinners take God's good gift of work and wealth and they twist it. And it's easy to be upset at what they're doing out there and it's, 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 right, it's right to be, to be burdened by that. Absolutely. God is burdened by that. And yet, and yet, do we realize that this, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is itself the very special work of God? This is, this is the body of Christ. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. As one hymn puts it, she is his new creation. Would we, would, would we treat this work lightly? We can be so slack in the way that we relate to one another, so sloppy in our speech, so dismissive in our actions, so selfish in our evaluations, so eager to get our own way and not so eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Those whom the Holy Spirit has brought together as one body in Christ, let no one put us under. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we undermine His work. We grieve the Holy Spirit when ungracious, destructive, and corrupting words come out of our mouth. We grieve the Holy Spirit when ungracious and mean-spirited attitudes come out of our hearts. Failing to walk in love grieves the Holy Spirit. And if we are grieving the Holy Spirit, that will impair every aspect of our life, our worship, our ministry, our mission, because all of it is meant to be empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. The third reason why peace among Christ's people is so important is that failing to preserve and promote peace undermines our witness. God's will is that our very life together be a testimony to the world and to the angels. Concerning our testimony to the world, Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all people will know 
that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Loving each other with a costly, sacrificial, peaceable, visible, generous, warm-hearted, and joyful love is a signpost to the world that we belong to Christ, that the love of Christ has captured our hearts, that the power of Christ isn't a matter of talk, but is actually transforming our lives, priorities, and relationships. Concerning our testimony to the angels, the Apostle Paul said that God's purpose in bringing believing Gentiles into his family and making them fellow heirs with believing Jews is so that through, you can look at this, Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. They're They're watching. They're paying attention. Outside of Christ, there is so much pride and envy between different ethnicities and cultures and socioeconomic groups. But in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all, Colossians 3.11. When a church made up of people of diverse backgrounds come together in glad-hearted unity to worship the Lord together and to serve one another in love, the angels see God's manifold wisdom embodied in earthly form, and it is beautiful to their eyes. But if the world looks upon us and sees bickering and bitterness, and if the angels look upon us and see disorder and discord, then they may sensibly conclude that this group of people has not yet learned Christ. This group of people has not yet grasped the love of Christ. This group of people has not yet internalized the wisdom of God. Failing to walk in love undermines our testimony. Fourth, the fourth reason why peace among Christ's people is so important is that failing to preserve and promote peace is the pathway to mutual destruction. This is the warning that Paul sounds to the Galatians. At the end of the day, there is no neutral middle space between life empowered by the Holy Spirit and life empowered by the sinful flesh. It is one or the other. You must not hedge your bets that if the way of the Holy Spirit doesn't work, you've been clever enough to leave some room for the flesh to bail you out. That way is closed to you. You must be all in. Since the the fruit of the the Holy Spirit is love, Galatians 5.22, we can be sure that if we keep in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5.25, then we will be serving one another in love, Galatians 5.13. The alternative is to walk by the power of the sinful flesh, which is always destructive. The Holy Spirit generates love, which is oriented towards serving others and is constructive and edifying. The sinful flesh generates a ball of unruly desires and is destructive. Look at, uh, look at Galatians 5, verse 13. For you were called the freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Do you see the alternatives? 
There is no neutral middle space. Either we will, through love, serve one another, or we will bite and devour one another. Either we will bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2, or we will weigh each other down with ungracious words and deeds. Either, either we will protect and promote one another's well-being, or, Galatians 5.26, we will become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Either we will restore our brothers and sisters when they have stumbled, Galatians 6.1, or we will consume one another to our mutual ruin. Blessing each other or biting each other. Serving each other or snapping at one another. Delighting in each other or devouring each other. Restoring one another or ruining one another. And if somebody says, ah, I... You say there's no middle ground, but I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of on the sidelines, neither building up nor tearing down. And if that's what you're thinking, then I have a verse for you. <laughs> I want you to reflect on Proverbs 18.9, which says, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who, de- is a brother to him who destroys. One of your work assignments as a Christian is to build up your brothers and sisters. Whoever is slack in the work of building up is a brother to him who destroys. In other words, slack edifiers are essentially destroyers. And I don't say this, I don't say this so that fragile brothers and sisters would lose heart, but so that all of us would have a sober mind about the critical importance that we be on the field of battle, suited up in God's armor, always eager and ready to help one another in whatever ways are needful. Failing to walk in love is the pathway to mutual destruction. Since the stakes are so high and the fleshly and slack way leads to ruin, we should be doubly resolved to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Romans 14, verse 19. The fifth reason why peace among Christ's people is so important is that failing to preserve and promote peace puts your own soul in grave danger. If you refuse to pursue loving and healthy relationships with the people that the Lord has put around you, especially the brothers and sisters right here who are part of this church family, then that will cause massive interference in your relationship with the Father. Right? Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. To be reconciled to a brother or sister is an urgent matter. Then afterward, you can come into the sanctuary and sing a hymn of praise or put your offering into the offering plate. If we had a temporary drop in attendance or a temporary drop in financial giving because people were busy meeting up at all times, including Sunday mornings, in order to work through issues and be reconciled to one another. That that would be something to celebrate. It's that important. We we, we, we 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 can't do Romans 15 
worshiping God with one heart and one voice if, if, we're, if we're not reconciled. After teaching us how to pray in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13, Jesus offered commentary on one aspect of the prayer. Part of the model prayer is, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, Matthew 6, 12. It's rather difficult to pray that way if you haven't forgiven your debtors, right? Jesus comments on this part of the prayer in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now the point is not that our ability to forgive one another earns us forgiveness from God. The point, rather, is that we cannot abide in the grace and joy of fellowship with the Father, a fellowship which depends on his gracious forgiveness toward us, we can't do that, we can't abide in him if we refuse to be conduits of his gracious forgiveness to others. Either we will live in the stream of divine mercy that flows from the Lord to us and through us to one another, or we will live in a desert land of barrenness bitterness and unforgiveness. There is no neutral middle space. Brothers and sisters, love for one another is the God-appointed fruit of his love for us and our love for him. God's design is for his love, his forgiveness, and his generosity to create and sustain a Christ-centered community that is marked by mutual love, forgiveness, and generosity. When we chart a different course, we grieve the Holy Spirit, undermine our testimony, bring great injury upon one another, and put our own individual soul in peril. Now, Lord willing, next week we will begin to look at practical tactics necessary to the work of preserving and promoting true peace within the body of Christ. For now, I want to encourage you to begin asking questions like this. Is there a relationship with someone here that needs tending or developing or strengthening or mending? What action steps will you take? Clothe yourself with humility because your initiative to reach out to someone might be rebuffed at first. Clothe yourself with humility because someone else may realize that they need to reach out to you. How will you respond? when that other person reaches out to you and says, hey, hey, can we talk? Now, if I may speak personally for just a moment, I want you to know that I live in the middle of this stuff. I didn't say I live perfectly in the middle of the stuff. I just said I live in the middle of this stuff. Like, these reflections this morning are not the result of being up in some ivory tower and I'm just coming down to bless you with these wonderful words. Um, I know what it is like to have strained relationships. I know what it is like to sit with brothers functioning as a mediator to help them be reconciled. I know what it is like to have a disagreeable email show up in my inbox. I know what it is like not to dismiss said disagreeable email but to labor over it patiently in order to give a constructive and peace-promoting answer. 
For the last several months, the other elders and I have spent considerable time with one honorable brother in particular, with whom we have a strained relationship. And it's the sort of uh, relationship where the phrase, well, it's complicated, seems to fit. But even so, this situation uh, has uh, prompted us to write a letter to the whole congregation, because we believe that this strained relationship between the elders and this honorable brother uh, is relevant to the whole congregation. And so if the copier machine doesn't break, break and the ink doesn't run out, it should be put in your family files on, on Tuesday. And I, I, com I commend this letter to you, not only for what it says, but also for what it models. And, and when I say what it models, what I don't mean is the elders are awesome at peacemaking. Follow us. That's not my point. My point is we're, the elders are in the middle of this stuff too. And we're working at it. We're, we're working at it. We're taking steps. We're plotting away. Okay? Uh, having to expend time and energy in order to preserve and promote peace within the body of Christ is not a distraction from our calling. It is a part of our calling. The exhortation to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, 2 Timothy 2.22, that exhortation is given to us amid a fallen world, amid an imperfect church, amid complicated relationships, and the action of actually pursuing peace is labor-intensive. And it's often choppy, unpredictable, three steps forward, two steps backward. And it's totally worth doing because it involves us in God's work. And God is doing some good mixing. And when the mixing is done, the final product will most certainly be even better than biscuits. I really believe that. I've already seen, I've already seen it. I'm six years here. I've seen it. I've seen difficult relationships strengthen relationships, but you have to walk through it as uncomfortable as it is. Brothers and sisters, I leave you with this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James 1, verses 2 to 4, and James 3, verse 18. Let's pray. Father, I pray, as I, was, as I would always hope for the preaching of your word, but especially this particular series, that, that these words would not be in one ear and out the other, but that these words would, would sit in our hearts and work upon our hearts and our minds and our priorities and our relationships. And Father, wherever there needs to be a relationship tended or a relationship developed or strengthened or a relationship mended and healed, I pray that you would fill us with all the, the courage and compassion and strength and humility to work at that, that we might see an increasing harvest of righteousness right here in our own church family, sown in peace by those who make peace, all empowered by your spirit.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.